Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here's my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we are discussing Velvet Goldmine, which may be this podcast's joint favourite movie ever. Um, it's written and directed by Todd Haynes and it's a musical drama starring Jonathan Rhys Myers as a rock star called Brian Slade, who was inspired by David Bowie and other kind of 1970s glam rock icons. Christian Bale co-stars as a Brian Slade fan who grows up to be a music journalist, with Ewan McGregor and Tony Collette playing Brian Slade's two love interests, um, his wife Mandy and a punk rock star called Kurt Wilde, who is very clearly Iggy Pop. Told in a non-linear structure, it kind of explores themes of fame, fandom and queer culture. And it's amazing. And the soundtrack is very memorably brilliant. Yes, we love this film so much. We are very grateful to our patron Eleanor, a different Eleanor than the Eleanor who sponsored our Star Wars episodes, who requested this through Patreon. Uh, We're very excited to talk about it. We could talk about this for a long time, but we will restrain ourselves (laughs) to one hour. Why don't you have you saw this before I did chronologically. So why don't you start with your personal history with all the cold mine and then I'll go. Yeah, so I saw this as a teenager. Um, I found out about it on LiveJournal probably when I was 14 or so. And I ordered the DVD to watch at home on my computer and it arrived in the morning and I got up early to watch it before school when I first got it, I think. <laughs> uh, which is just, it's a really, it's a really 14 year old obsessive kind of decision to make. And I think that really colours both of our experiences with this and a lot of other people's experiences with this film. So it came out in 1998, so it's a bit before our time, but it's become this really just immortal cult classic um, since then. And yeah, like I watched this probably more than any other film I've seen in my life. I saw it probably about 10 times over the course of my kind of teenage years. I've not watched it in a long time, actually. We didn't rewatch it for this episode um, because we didn't have time this week, but... I think we essentially both have this film memorized and especially the soundtrack album, which I just listened to on repeat for years. Yeah, I too have listened to that soundtrack album a million times and except for like The Lion King or whatever, like movies I watched as a child every day, I think I've probably seen this more than anything else as an adult, in part because I wrote my senior thesis in college about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So I saw this for the first time when I was a freshman in college. My roommate showed me like there's a little like music video within the film i think she found out i hadn't seen it and was like oh my god and like showed me just that music video and i was like well clearly i have to watch this and so i watched it on netflix it was on netflix like the streaming part of netflix which at the time was still kind of like a novelty thing like you got dvds from netflix which we did and so the quality was really bad like it was very like pixelated and just not a great viewing experience but I was like this is the best film I've ever seen like I just thought it was amazing because it is and then I saw I'm trying to remember when I saw Citizen Kane it would have been a year or two later I mean I saw Citizen Kane like last year because I was like finally I'm gonna see the film that inspired Velvet Goldmine right (laughs) because they're very related and we'll explain that And so I think it was once I'd seen that that I was like, I should write my senior thesis on this because it's really interesting. And then kind of wound up going in another direction. But yeah, I had that planned for a long time that I was going to do my thesis on this. And then I did. So that's my, (laughs) I like to discuss that. A funny fact about me, Um, very in character. But yeah, this movie basically has three primary sources, which are the David Bowie stuff, which you mentioned, and then Citizen Kane 
and Oscar Wilde, who is quoted extensively through the film. The movie opens with like Oscar Wilde coming down from a spaceship and being left on someone's doorstep in Dublin in the 19th century, which is like a wild way to begin a film. And then there are kind of other references to him throughout. Like there's a, he's left on the doorstep with a green pin, which kind of is a reference to like the green carnations. Well, there's, were... it becomes a sort of amulet that passes on a sort of fame energy that burns really bright and then is passed on to someone else. Yes. The wild stuff I think is the most kind of subtextual in the movie, I would say, even though it actually literally is text because they're quoting him all the time. And then the Bowie stuff is the most obvious because it he, they literally are based on Bowie and his contemporaries. Like if you know anything about glam, it's pretty obvious what's going on. And then the Citizen Kane stuff is in a way the most interesting, I think, because Basically, Citizen Kane is a film that is about this figure, Charles Foster Kane, who is a newspaper magnate in the 1940s. And the movie takes place after he has died. And he was like the most rich and famous person in America, basically. And these journalists are trying to figure out like basically the story of his life. And so they go around talking to these people who knew him when he was alive. And Velvet Goldmine is framed very much like that so citizen so christian bale plays a journalist who is doing essentially the same thing and there are visual things that reference citizen kane and except christian bale has a more sort of personal stake in this story than in citizen kane but essentially what todd haynes is doing is like querying the most classic of all classic films ever like citizen kane obviously gets referenced as like the best movie of all time constantly and he's doing this sort of weird glam rock spin on it, yeah, it's which is a, totally wild. Like, fucking bold move that I like, obviously did not pick up on at the age of 14 is like how ambitious it is to take Citizen Kane and make this movie, which is also a legitimate masterpiece and has really lived on and people love for a multitude of reasons and doesn't feel like a ripoff. No, because of the subject matter, it feels totally distinct. Like It's not like it's a remake of Citizen Kane or anything, but if you do know that movie... Like, he's not being subtle about it. Like, yeah. there are shots that are explicitly taken from Citizen Kane. But all that that does is make it a more rich text. It's not like it feels cheap in any way. It's, like, a really interesting story about fame, specifically. Because there's so many movies that are about rock stars that are really shallow or are direct biopics and therefore are not interesting because pretty much no biopic is ever interesting. Because um, like there was debates over accuracy, and also they're really they have to be really kind of mainstream and dull. Uh, I was interested to kind of just think back on this film and look at the elements that I'm now much more kind of consciously interested in. So like I think you and I are both really into Captain America for very similar reasons that overlap with the way this film kind of looks at fame. So it's like the kind of the dichotomy between the person's private life and how they're represented in public culture and how like their imagery becomes important to like civilians in different ways. Yeah. I mean, the sort of interesting thing about this, which is similar to Citizen Kane, is that the the big figure in this movie is the rock star figure who's called Brian Slade and he's played by Jonathan Rhys Myers 
magnificently. He was like 19 when they made this movie, yeah, which is it's horrifying. Bonkers. <laughs> and perfectly cast. Yes. They're all perfectly cast. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you don't have any access to his interior life. Like you can kind of glean some things from his performance, which is a great performance, but everything is told from the point of view of other people, right? So he's this mammoth famous person, but it's not really about him and so you are getting this sense of like fame warping this guy but you're not seeing his interior life no, at all it's more about what's, no it's more about how this is affecting the people around him which is different from citizen kane because citizen kane like you do see how the people in kane's life are suffering but it's definitely all about like america and the tragedy of like the american male basically, and, like, how this man's life is, like, fucked up. Whereas in Velvet Goldmine, I mean, the reason it works as a music biopic, right, is that they initially wanted to use all the Bowie songs, and then Bowie's just, Bowie was like, I'm not letting you do that, which Todd Haynes has now said was, like, a great thing that happened yeah, to them, it actually. it much better. <laughs> yeah, because it becomes symbolic of other things and not just about Bowie, which obviously the movie would have been anyway, but it happens more you know, organically. Um, and we talk all the time about the film Walk Hard, which is an amazing film satirizing music biopics. And those movies tend to be terrible. I mean, most biopics, as you say, don't work, but music biopics in particular are just like awful. And what makes this one good is that it's not about biography of someone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an actual things. drama with themes and an interesting story structure rather than desperately trying to drag themes and a story structure out of someone's chaotic life. I will note that the only other music biopic that I think is any good is I'm Not There, Todd Haynes' movie about Bob Dylan, which is also completely weird and just like not a narrative film in any way. So yeah, they have like <laughs> he's six the people only person playing Bob Dylan in that. <laughs> yeah, he's the only person who figured it out. But yeah, uh, let's talk a little bit more about what actually happens in this movie yeah it's told in a couple of different timelines first of all like two periods of time so half of it is kind of the height of the glam rock era sort of the mid 70s in britain uh, when brian slade goes on a trajectory that's very similar to uh, david bowie's so you see kind of various early eras of kind of david bowie's fame so like when he started off early he was sort of a bit more kind of hippie-ish. He had long hair, he wore gowns, and then he kind of went to the sort of Ziggy Stardust phase and so on. And then the, there was one that's set in the present day, which is 1984 for this world, which is like, it's very depressing, like gloomy um, situation where it kind of feels like all the magic has gone out of the world. And at that point in time, uh, Christian Bale's character is an adult and he's a journalist who's now trying to find out what happened to Brian Slade. Like he vanished where is he, what happened to his legacy when he was such a huge part of music culture in the 70s and a huge part of Christian Bale's life because in the kind of 1970s era, we see Brian Slade's life kind of unfold in, the per in a personal way. Like we see his, his wife, his journey to fame and so on. But we also see Christian Bale as a teenager basically discovering himself through his love of this musician because he's, he's living in this very conservative English town 
like working class background has no exposure whatsoever to queer culture or anything outside the bounds of what his parents would let him see and you know there's this amazing scene where he sees Brian Slade performing on television and the character sort of like jumps up and yells like this is me and it's sort of this perfect kind of depiction of like seeing yourself represented in media and it being a really kind of visceral difference in a way that I think that like pretty much nothing else can give such a such a perfect way of illustrating that emotion and then he get like after seeing that he gets really into kind of glam rock and he ends up running away from home in the end um, because he's his parents aren't accepting and so forth you know it's the 70s in England and so he his whole kind of formative experience is all about being a fan of these artists who in reality he like doesn't know on a personal level at all yeah, the stuff with Christian Bale, which is the sort of heart of the movie, even though it doesn't take up as much screen time as the stuff with the actual musicians, is so good. <laughs> um, everything about this movie is great, but the Christian Bale stuff, specifically in the in the past, the stuff with him in the present is sort of necessary to the movie, but isn't as compelling. I and think. it's really astounding how much he looks exactly like a teenager and exactly like someone in his mid-twenties in the same it's film. It's amazing! With it's like unbelievable. minimal makeup, you're just like, this is literally a teenage boy and literally an adult man. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. His transformative work began early. Um, he's got these like bright red cheeks when he's a teenager yes. and he just like is so awkward. I think this is Christian Bale's finest performance. He needs to go back to doing this kind of thing and not his weird man films that he's been doing recently. Characters with sweetness. Yes. I wrote a little bit about this actually in my um, post on the Patreon blog that Patreon subscribers can read about Vice. Uh, And the reason that that movie doesn't work is that actually I was talking to a friend of mine and kind of had this revelation that like, even though he's this sort of weirdo intense figure in public. And so we think of him as not a very likable person. And he's done these man films recently that actually he's as an actor, he's very, very charismatic and you want to like him. Like there's just something about him that is inherently very likable. And even in like American psycho where he's obviously playing like a psychopath, he's playing kind of an idiot who is meant to be charismatic, right? Like that movie is, you're not supposed to just be like, Oh, you're just a complete. Yeah, I wish he had person, more of a chance right? in the Batman movies to play Brucey e. Wayne, himbo yes. extraordinaire. <laughs> and Vice doesn't work because he is supposed to be playing just a complete 100% psychopath with no emotions. Not that the film actually depicts Channing that way, but that's another story. Um, and it just doesn't work because you like Christian Bale, actually. I was like, <laughs> oh, this. I mean, I like Christian Bale anyway, but. It was interesting to realize that, and it was making me think then about this movie, which is definitely his most straightforwardly likable performance, and he's so good at it. I was like, oh, just do more of that. But this in particular, like, I haven't seen his other really young roles. Like, I never saw Little Women, which I really should do. And, like, I watched part of Newsies in college because I had a friend... This is around this time when I saw this film for the first time. A friend of mine had really loved it as a kid and was like, we should watch Newsies. And that's a movie you have to have seen as a child. Because let me tell you, if you watch that for the first time as an adult, we made it halfway through. And I was like, I literally cannot take this anymore. Like, please turn it off. Um, But he just had this quality of such winningness as a young actor and incredible openness with emotion that makes him really good for this because when he's playing the adult version of this character, he has the more sort of almost like Bruce Wayne-ish sort of closed off-ness because he's older and sort of 
more messed up. But when he's playing a teenager, you completely feel that teenageness. Like no one understands me. He's completely fresh. Um, oh my god! And <laughs> then just also, out of the packaging. <laughs> oh my god! And then he like when he runs away from home, like he's well. First, before he actually runs away, he sort of will sneak out and then dress up in his sort of like glam clothes which he's clearly very uncomfortable in but also is like excited to be sort of trying this yeah, out there's, there's like a scene where he's wearing essentially a normal-ish 1970s outfit and then he like puts a bunch of badges on his jacket to show that he's actually with the glam rock people and then runs off with other teens and i'm like this is just so evocative like it's just so real <laughs> i know and then later in the movie he like dresses up basically as brian slade which sort of is fits into the movie's whole motif of sort of impersonating other people or like pretending to be someone you aren't and he just cannot pull it off at all like but it's zero also like percent what teenagers do like when you're learning to express yourself and you like oh copy, yeah and it's just so precise oh i mean one absolutely it's so charming and adorable but also he looks like an idiot which is part of the point like they've deliberately styled him to look like mm. an idiot right like they i'm sure they could have done it in a way that looked better but they didn't. They made him look dumb. Jonathan Meyer is just has... It's just astounding to think how young he was when he was making this film. Like, I think he's... Possibly, at this point, he was younger than Christian Bale. But, yes. like, he just seems completely ageless because he has this quality of just pure charisma and star power. But also playing this character who, like, he is very explicitly meant to be quite a toxic person. He's got all the kind of classic rock star traits of being an egomaniac and just, like, taking everything too far and not being kind to the people in his personal life. But at the same time you're rooting for him because it is this sort of tragic love story between him and Kurt Wilde and all this other stuff. The level of stage presence and charisma is just astounding. Well, it's interesting what happened to his career. Obviously, you know, he had personal difficulties, but his best role happened when he was 19. There was no way he was ever going to top that. And he gave an interesting interview recently where he it talked was a really about good interview. it and he was very, very sort of lucid about it. And about the glam rock and clearly is like a very smart person and was not being nostalgic about it at all but just sort of talking about it in a very in a way that made it clear that he'd gone to a lot of therapy to discuss oh yeah to discuss big, his fame his fame level time. it was well we'll link to it in the show notes it was just very it was just very interesting but i can't imagine what that would be like to be 19 years old and to have this role that, like even if you're not conceptualizing it in that, quite that way at that time you watch this as a you know, as a just the viewer, and it's so obvious that this person is never going to top this, and it, not because he's not talented, but because this was role was like made for him, and he is so perfect for it. And I mean, he spent like twenty years now doing these sort of Byronic roles. Like he's played Dracula um, in one of the Draculas I've not seen actually, <laughs> um, a bad Dracula TV series, and sort of like various kind of you know murderous monarchs. You know, he was Ken with the Eighth and the Tudors and that sort of thing. Um, but he didn't quite reach, like, the A-list. No. And quite a lot of his roles are a bit silly. But he himself is great. <laughs> I mean, he's so, as you said, so unbelievably charismatic in this movie in a way that, like, if he weren't, the movie would totally not work. Even if everything else about the film were great, if you don't have that actor in that role who totally sells it, it would just be like, what are you doing because you have to completely believe that a this kid is fully obsessed with this guy to the point of like he's expressing his sexuality through his obsession with this person and b that 
Kurt Wilde, Ewan McGregor character, is also completely taken in by him. And that Tony Collette's character, Mandy, is also like living through him, essentially. So that's a lot of people to have to be. And just generally like the public. Yeah, he's like changed the entire history of music. (laughs) Right. That's a high bar to cross. Which and it's does. also it's also something that the way they kind of articulate his fame level, it's just much smarter than the way that a lot of films about artists kind of achieve because it's very difficult to make a film about especially a fictional artist and then have their art appear on screen and then you have to be convinced that it's the best thing that's ever been made when it can't be because it's just something someone's made up for a film. So what they've done with this is they have, a, like I said, like a really amazing soundtrack that's half of it is kind of covers of like kind of 1970s classics by people like T-Rex and whatever. Um, And half of it is music that's written by Radiohead for the film that sounds like classic glam rock. It all sounds really convincing. There's some in there which are legitimately hits and are like way better than some actual relatively well-known songs of the period. But the film doesn't have to sell you on the idea that he is literally this universe's equivalent of David Bowie because it's more about his star power than about the quality of the music. Um, And it's just kind of about the way that he manipulates his image and the way that he kind of enraptures people around him and the fact that he arrives at just the right point to create this huge like queer awakening around a whole generation of people which is like circumstantial as well and then it all kind of ties into the sort of magic realist fantasy idea of there being this supernatural power that gets passed down from space to Oscar Wilde to like a new kind of queer icon of every generation and it's like there's there's so many elements and they're so perfectly fit together (laughs) Well, this, the press conference where he sort of essentially comes out as bisexual, although he does it in a sort of implicit yeah. way, which is what sparks the, the moment where Christian Bale has this fantasy of saying, like, that's me, that's me, is shot really well. And also, again, that's not about the music, right? It's about him just having this incredible charisma and being willing to say stuff like that, which obviously people weren't very often and that is what is making these young people like so obsessed with him and the music is really good in the movie like if the music were terrible that also would be a problem but as you say it's not actually like the primary thing but it's great which does help a lot (laughs) (laughs) and a lot it's sort of a mix of like some of the some of the scenes where he's singing he's not singing but then some of the scenes he is and he actually can sing so yeah they recorded stuff with him at the front of a fake band they made up with Radiohead. So this is yeah. this is the the long precursor to Johnny Greenwood's genius work on Phantom Thread and so forth. I know. Just the, the origin story, which I hadn't really thought about until we came to record this episode. And I was like, my God, he's been with me this whole time. <laughs> I didn't care about Radiohead that much. Like, they're fine. I know, it's the same. Like, they're fine, but it's totally... Johnny Greenwood's film, film music career is much more important to me than, than Radiohead as a band. And also, like, this one, it goes kind of through quite a lot of really specific time periods because as well as having you know they have Ewan McGregor doing an Iggy Pop song and they have various sort of glam rock songs they also kind of go a bit earlier and they have towards the beginning of the film they have a music hall sequence so you see like the young Christian Bale seeing an old-fashioned drag show and sort of there's characters who are speaking Polari and stuff so it's just so rooted in like British queer culture like beyond just the idea of it being like oh 1970s glam rock there's this whole idea of kind of 
longevity and, and generational kind of uh, culture. Well, what's so amazing about Todd Haynes's films, which he's sort of moved away from a bit recently, not that his recent films like Carol or the Mildred Pierce, Pierce miniseries have aren't like incredibly historically researched and detailed, but they don't have quite this quality, which his earlier movies did of being in a way kind of like academic exercises with having so much referential material that they're still unbelievably entertaining. Like you don't have to understand any of this stuff. Yeah, it's the best kind of reference because it's not like, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy where it's like, oh, isn't it fun to like spot something you recognize and feel like you're in on the joke with this. It's sort of like there's the top, not superficial, but like the superficial surface level story is completely comprehensible and like beautifully emotional and wonderful to watch. And then you can just spend like, you know, a very long time researching all of the stuff that's referenced and like where that comes from which as a teenager is what I did and I'm sure what you did as well and I was just like you know (laughs) it's like finding out about like Jabriath and that sort of thing (laughs) yeah it's just he he packs it all in in a way that makes the films not that you can never fully understand them or anything but it there's sort of just like a, an onion that you could just keep peeling and peeling and peeling and peeling and there's just more and more and more stuff to keep going um which I really enjoy because he is really good at balancing that with the films being entertaining, right? Like when I saw this film for the first time, like I literally did not know anything about David Bowie except that he existed. Oh my God, that's nuts. So this was the foundational point of your... (laughs) Right. And I was talking to someone about this recently. Basically, it's not that David Bowie is not famous in America, because obviously he is, but it's not the same kind of just like cultural saturation as Mm -hmm. in the UK for obvious reasons, right? So I think most kids growing up in the US, unless you have a parent who's like a big Bowie person, obviously. It's just something you hear in the background of movies or something. Right. Like it's not something you're going to be familiar with the aesthetics, certainly. And so... If you're a teenager watching this, again, unless you have a particular reason to have been familiar with that iconography, like, you're just not going to know what all this means. And, like, I certainly recognize, like, the general glam imagery because I have eyes and, like, have seen things from history. But that was stuff that I didn't really get. And I still loved it. Like, you just don't have to know. But then once I did, you know, get it more, obviously the movie became more satisfying because I was like oh he's doing all of this and then you became stuff. a Bowie aficionado and the first place that Morgan and I met in real life truly historic moment was the David Bowie exhibit at the V&A <laughs> so <laughs> yep you're yep. here you're here for some for some overinvested podcast history <laughs> exactly yes and then again literally like read a Bowie biography for this thesis that I wrote which I then like didn't use at all because that's how it works but um yeah, so thank you to Todd Haynes for introducing me to David Bowie, basically. Yeah, I mean, the the sort of interesting thing about Bowie and the way it relates to this, obviously, is that he did the thing where he would just sort of transform his entire public image. Which is why I get really frustrated by contemporary pop stars who like do the thing where you you have like a different look for each album like Lady Gaga or Taylor Swift and I do really like Lady Gaga but like when I see comparisons between David Bowie and Lady Gaga I'm like no this is not the same thing like Lady Gaga has like an aesthetic and thematic makeover 
for each album, which is at this point relatively essential for any pop star of that size who also has like a massive team of people working for them. And I think Lady Gaga during the peak of her kind of pop star fame rather than to, rather than now was obviously like more in charge of her own persona than other pop stars generally are. Like it, it was her doing it and she was kind of, she had this, you know, entourage of artists that she personally had selected and so forth. But it's not the same thing as David Bowie because much of that stuff that she was doing is literally just what he'd done already. And with him, it was like he was genuinely innovating in like a really wild way and having a huge impact on just like the general pop culture. And he always knew like five years in advance what was going to be big and precisely when to just get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, he was a genius. Yeah. Obviously, in multiple ways, musically and otherwise. But what the movie does with that that's so interesting is obviously it's centrally about identity. I mean, it sort of concludes with a complete transformation of identity, like it literally Brian Slade just, you know, destroys himself. But you have him before that doing a similar thing, but then because he is such a charismatic figure, almost like a cult leader, all these other people in the movie are sort of following suit. So he and Mandy, his wife, when they are at the sort of peak of running his career together, because she is also a very sort of powerful person in his life for a period of time, literally dress in the same outfits. Like they are matchy matchy for a period of time. And you can tell that it's her way of trying to sort of stay with Yeah, him. present the image of a, being a unit. Yeah. And when she first meets him, she is clearly very sort of influential in his life. And then that sort of fades away and she's desperately trying to sort of stay with him. And the only way to do that is to literally become him, which doesn't work. And then obviously also you have the scene where the Christian Bale character is dressing up to look like him because that's the way he's sort of figured out who he is, is through this other person. Yeah. And it is this sort of just like revolving door yeah. of of that. And sort of like the only independent person is Kurt Wilde, Ewan McGregor's character, who when he arrives in the story already has this really cohesive identity for himself. Like he is this punk rock star. He's really rebellious. He doesn't give a shit about what other people think. Like the whole the whole nine yards. And obviously Brian Slade is like completely enraptured by this. But you kind of know that they're never going to fully gel, both because like they're both obsessed with each other, but their artistic styles can't fully mesh. And also they're both sort of alphas. So it's all just, <laughs> it's doomed, but in such a beautiful way. <laughs> well... What's so interesting about that is that the only time I think you really get to see what's going on in Brian Slade's head in a real way, and in a way that makes you like him, is when he first sees Kurt Wilde performing. And so he is the one acting like a fan. Yeah. And you see how much he loves music and art. Yes, and he's just like, oh my god. And he's, I think he literally says to to his wife, like, I wish I'd thought of it. Because he's so totally taken with the whole thing that's going on. And Ewan McGregor is totally just, like, balls out. Like, just total, like, nutso in this movie. In a way, it's completely different from what Jonathan Rhys Myers is doing. Uh, so they have this great contrast with each other. And 
Brian Slater tracks him down and finds he's a drug addict and is really not doing very well. And he's like, no, we have to, like, bring him back to London or wherever. And everyone else in his life is like, must we, though? Like, is that really <laughs> necessary? And there's a scene where he literally is, like, gazing at him and there are, like, hearts in his eyes literally hearts in his eyes not figuratively <laughs> and then they sort of they pan around the camera and his manager who's like a classic evil business manager played by Eddie Azard just has dollar signs in his eyes just like this film is so good <laughs> but that's the only sort of time where you're actually getting to see into his head right and that of course is also very short-lived for the reasons that you mentioned because once they get Kurt into the studio and like off the drugs and like doing better it's and the wrong environment this... <laughs> right once they're like having this affair and like seem to be kind of happy and then he's in the studio his music is bad <laughs> it's very very bad because he has to be on stage on drugs having a miserable time and so then the shine wears off that real quick but he then is sort of left with this obsession with this person too because everyone who comes into contact with Brian Slade, winds up obsessed with him forever, which is his, like, dark talent, basically. It's it's kind of just thinking about it. Um, I think if you're, like, a huge Velvet Goldmine fan, then I think that this is, like, the ultimate Ewan McGregor role and the ultimate Jonathan Rhys Meyers role, but not the ultimate Christian Bale role, because, he, I mean, Christian Bale's done all these other iconic roles. And with Ewan McGregor, obviously, he's this very famous person, <laughs> but like this is the role like not of his career but if you've watched this movie it's just so much more interesting than like most of the I mean he does a lot of quite banal films first of all but like this is the role I think I mean his best role is Moulin Rouge oh yeah I forgot about that right romantic and lead I, perfect yeah. romantic lead that only just occurred to me I was like oh yeah it's definitely Moulin Rouge <laughs> but this has got to be number two, right? Like, this, it's so fucking weird. <laughs> those are ha- those are the two best movies he's done, also. It's almost like he ought sure. to be capitalizing more on his famous sex appeal. You which think? he has in spades <laughs> and misuses. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, what's so interesting about the Bale situation is that, as I said, I think this is his best role i would say this and then american psycho and then probably the fighter or the top three right but what's so interesting about this is that it's i do think it's his best performance although i think he's great in a lot of things obviously but it's completely different from what he's become known for yeah right so it's a little hard to assess his full career because like i think this is so incredible but it's not like it's very hard to compare to his other work because it's like in a different box. Like, how do you compare this to the big short, right? Like, it's just a completely different thing, but I think it's better. So I think he should perhaps, I don't know, work with a female director. That would be nice. Just my advice to you, Christian. Yeah. Definitely listening to this podcast. Like, I'm sure just, he is. Come on. Oh yeah. He's our biggest fan. <laughs> Uh, we should also say that Tony Collette is in this film, which we obviously mentioned, but we have not praised her sufficiently. And I think this is, except for now Hereditary, which is obviously we've talked about. She's amazing. Uh, she is so fucking good in this movie. So amazing. 
I'm really glad she got that big leading role in Hereditary because I think she has been sort of chronically underappreciated, though obviously she has been working consistently in good TV shows and whatever for the past couple, you know, 20 years. But I just think she is so astonishing in this movie, playing someone who is not necessarily, you know, likable. I'm using very disparaging well, she's quotation marks here. Well, she's like the pathetic character. Yeah, because she's sort of hung up on this yeah. person. Who clearly is like, it's not happening. Yeah, he's just um, like eating her up and chewed her out. Yeah, but there's something very sort of tough about her also. So she is essentially the second wife from Citizen Kane. Obviously, there's only one wife in this film. But he goes, uh, Christian Bale goes and talk to, talks to her in this bar. And like the way it's shot is shot exactly the same as that sequence in Citizen Kane. And um, this that part in Citizen Kane... So that woman, she's in this bar and she's clearly just like a huge mess and it's really grim. And in this, Tony Collette in that part is also like drinking quite a lot and whatever, but you can tell that she's reached this point of completely knowing exactly what has happened. Like she's totally clear-eyed about everything. She's the one who's the most aware of everything at that point. She's no longer deluding herself about anything. And... So you have the combination of that part of the story and then the part where she's really love struck at the beginning and then the sort of middle phase where she's being treated like shit and sort of won't accept it yet. And the fact that she has the range of all those things in the same film is so, it's just a great performance. And I think that there's one other female character in the movie who has a kind of small role, which I also enjoy, but it's small part but it's just nice that there is the one female character in this film and she actually is complicated and good because this could easily have been a movie all that men exclusively and it could easily have been sexist oh yeah but it's very much not and is also beloved of now probably two or three generations of teenage girls (laughs) well this is like you read articles interviews with todd haynes sort of in the aftermath of this movie because he will get asked about it periodically um, because it's such a cult hit. And <laughs> he's always like, yeah, I just really wasn't expecting teenage girls to love this movie so much. Uh, it's great. I just, I just hadn't really expected it. It's like, yeah, that's, that's shockingly. Like, <laughs> I mean, except now for like, Carol is extremely popular, obviously, but it's only been out for, you know, a couple of years. So this is surely his most watched film. Yes. Right? Like, no and question. Most, the one that ha- and also it's like, most of his films have earned critical acclaim and respect. But this is the one that people have like a really personal attachment to. Yes. And we'll watch over and over again. Right? And it's the one that young people always are like rediscovering. Like, I have no doubt that the teens of today also love this film. This, I mean, our kind of teen. <laughs> yeah, well, <you> know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's perfectly illustrative of the experience of being a fan without being a film that's like, this is a film about fans or this is a film about a coming of age story. You know, it's like, it's subtle enough that it's got like a whole bunch of stuff to dig into, but it also like you can understand it on an instinctive level. Well, the genius of the fan stuff is that it doesn't, explain to you that that's what it's about so if you are a teenager 
with that like fan gene, I don't think like I didn't really I get didn't, that that I was didn't what it get was about. It, no, I didn't at right? the time. <laughs> and so you can just engage as a fan and like you're just playing out what the movie is about. Yeah. Right? And then researching all of the references in it and become and becoming fascinated by that as well as I did and my friends did. <laughs> I just remembered one of the also genius sequences in this is the moment where Kurt Wilde and Brian Slade like declare their love for each other is played out with like teenage girls with Barbie dolls. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, even if he was surprised, he shouldn't have been because he literally put us in the movie. <laughs> but that also, right, is like he doesn't, he won't show us that moment because that would totally not it's too private. Like, yeah, it, it's not in the brief of the movie, but he'll show us what people are thinking because all the fans, because like Kurt Wilde starts going on tour and stuff with them. So all the fans then are like, what's going on with these two people? And of course, the like teenage girls like to speculating romantically. <laughs> yes, exactly. But then, you know, all we have is the text of the movie to go on. So then that's kind of what you have to imagine is what he's telling you. So it's this weird kind of Mobius strip, right? Of like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, that is the like love story of the movie because that's the only information that we have. But also it's like bad information because we're only hearing it secondhand. So it's like this sort of strange fictional paradox that is also interesting. Yeah, it's just, it's very good. The tech stuff is also very impressive beyond just the music, which we've discussed. Um, the costumes in this film, which is the only Oscar nomination it received, I believe, are beyond just There's so fucking many of them. Extraordinary. <laughs> like, I was just Google imaging that because I was, like, remembering, like, every iconic costume from this. And there's just, like, a costume change every five minutes. Um, the costumes are by Sandy Powell, who's won three Oscars. Like, she's one of the biggest costume designers in Hollywood. Like I kind of said earlier, it's the they chart a lot of David Bowie's career and also other kind of glam rock stars of the era. So there's loads of really direct references for stage costumes. And also you see him doing photo shoots and kind of just living his life like he always has to be in costume because he's a rock star. And it's a really great way of kind of showing the passage of time and how much he's sort of intentionally evolving his image. And I think Todd Haynes kind of shoots it in an interesting way because like there's some parts of it which are shot to look like a 1970s kind of TV broadcast and some of it looks really similar to of the time sort of like late 90s top of the pops or like magazine photo shoots for like pop groups of that time so it's like the people who were watching it when it came out in 1998 would just kind of subtextually kind of know certain ways of shooting it's just really interesting but um yeah the costumes are just astounding and you can really see the way in which like Brian Slade himself is like trying to shape himself. So the music video that Morgan mentioned at the beginning of the podcast is sort of this kind of semi-historical one where he's dressed as like a glam version of like a 17th century fop and has a pink curly wig and is wearing this iridescent frock coat and stuff. And it's just, it, it could be silly, but he just has so much kind of sexuality and menace that it just becomes incredibly compelling. And I think that's something that people who don't really like glam rock or see the 70s kind of a silly era 
don't really get because it's very easy to look at pictures of a lot of David Bowie's costumes or people from this time and be like, they look fucking ridiculous or just like people off the street because it was very ostentatious and very kind of colourful and over the top and kind of, there were a lot of themed cartoonish costumes. Um, And also like a lot of the kind of stars who were around at that time were just really silly. But the one of the reasons why David Bowie specifically kind of lasted is because there's this dark and sexual element and there's a lot of high concept stuff going on there. And that's what this film really understands. Like it understands the dark side in a non-cliched way and why you can get like incredibly emotionally wrapped up in someone who's wearing, you know, fluorescent green flares. <laughs> yes, you have put it well. I think that's the note to end on. I mean, <laughs> what can I say to top that? Like that's, you've done it. Um, this movie is a masterpiece. If you have not seen it, you are depriving yourself. Yeah, we've made sure um, actually not to spoil that much of the actual story. Yeah. So you should watch this movie and also recommend this podcast to all your friends because this episode is really one of our one of our areas of expertise. <laughs> yes, we've, done, we've really gone deep. All of Todd Haynes' movies, frankly, are incredible, except yeah. for the last one. I mean, I've not, I've not seen them all. I really do need to see the Bob Dylan one. Oh my um, god, it's so good. Yeah, I know, I know, I'd love it. And one of my flatmates is a big Bob Dylan fan, so I'll just watch it with her. But like, yeah, that was the first Todd Haynes movie I saw, and I saw it in a theater when it came out, and it was one of the most profound theater going, like movie going experiences I've had because it completely just like blew my mind. I was, you know, 18 or whatever. And I was just like, oh my God, movies can do this because it's <laughs> so experimental and weird. And obviously, I've obviously seen much weirder movies since, but I hadn't really at that time. And so I was just like, oh my God. And so it has, I mean, I think he's done better films, but it's one of the most like important to me because it had a huge impact on me at the time. And I think it's amazing. Like, I think it's a really incredible film that if you're interested in music i would really recommend but that's another one like i didn't know shit about bob dylan at the time yeah like obviously i knew about bob dylan but like it's very specific and referential to his biography and i didn't fucking i mean i don't i don't know or really care about bob dylan so this is the ideal kind of movie because like i do not want to watch like a straight biopic of bob dylan because i don't give a shit but like i will watch this film (laughs) right um and i think it's i still am not an expert on his biography but i know more now and again, it makes the movie more interesting, but it's not something you need to be, you know, versed in whatever. Like, that's not what it's about. Um, so I would recommend that one, too, as well as his other stuff. He's yes. just Carol, a very talented man. very good film. Fond memories of making all of my friends go to the cinema and watch that as my birthday present. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Safe and Far From Heaven, also, also excellent. Just go through the list, basically. Okay, so next week, Morgan. Yes, we will be discussing the new Netflix release, Velvet Buzzsaw, which we briefly mentioned on our top 10 movies of 2018 podcast. Uh, It is a new Jake Gyllenhaal movie uh, about the art world in Los Angeles. I am very excited to watch this because I love Jake Gyllenhaal and weird films. And the combination of the two is, is very delicious to me. It is weird. It is fun, yes. I would like to add. This is this film is directed by Dan Gilroy, who directed um, Nightcrawler, which also starred Jake Gyllenhaal. It's incredible. You can watch that movie on Netflix as well, and it's excellent. It's kind of a dark thriller with Riz Ahmed in a sporting role. And this one is kind of more comedic. It's satirical. Jake Gyllenhaal is doing a lot in it. It's very fun. I don't really want to spoil it. I don't think you should watch the trailer. It's got some wacky elements 
Um, <laughs> and it's also another movie with Velvet in the title. It has um, Tony Collette. So in there it. you go. So, a weird double bill. <laughs> I have not seen it yet. I'm very much looking forward to it. So that will be this week. Uh, and then after that, we will be discussing Can You Ever Forgive Me, which has received a couple Oscar nominations and was one of my favorite movies. Richard E. Grant, who I'm rooting for, even though I've he not seen it. He deserves it. So you're correct. One of the best performances of the year in any category. He, he's wonderful. Melissa McCarthy is also fantastic. It involves the rare book world in New York, which is something about which I have some level of expertise. It was very fun to me. It's just a great film. Uh, it's just coming out now in the UK, but it's been out for a while in the US. Uh, definitely see it uh, if you have the chance in the next week or so. Yeah, we're looking forward to both those episodes. We will be attempting a regular Wednesday posting schedule from this point on. So hopefully we will be appearing in your feeds in a more routine way than we have been recently. It's been a bit of a chaotic period. Yes. Uh, if you would like to sponsor an episode like this one, you can fund us at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We would also greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever other podcasting service you use. It really helps us find new listeners. And uh, Gabia, where can we find your work online? You can find my writing, which is movie and TV reviews mostly, on The Daily Dot. Currently, I'm recapping Star Trek Discovery, which is essential reading for all of you. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. Uh, you can also find this podcast on Twitter at overinvestedpod. We are on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. And we have a website at overinvestedpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back next week. Bye.